You're not going to have Jensen pulling large semiconductors out of his oven if that's the case. Maybe that's his happy place, man. Maybe he doesn't like, maybe that's a low stress environment for him when he's cooking the semiconductors. This keeps coming up. You're so fascinated with him cooking semiconductors. Yeah, because he looks good in an apron and a leather jacket. <laughs> This podcast contains the arguably witty banter of two friends, Skippy and Doogles, that like to debate about investing. The content is intended to be entertaining and for informational purposes only, not investment advice. You should do your own research and consult a financial professional before using any of the information in this podcast, and especially before investing. Work with it. Oh, how's my didgeridoogles today? He's good. He's good. I've been America again for a week now. Yeah, you're loving it, right? I'm just, oh yeah, I'm just turning nasty. It's great. <laughs> You yelling at people yet? You like pushing old ladies down on the street every day. I set like a cal. I set a calendar invite so that I can make sure at least every hour and a half someone hears my Americanisms. Be a good Phenomenal. American today, as you reminder. Yeah, By the way, those, exactly. If you don't get those jokes, listen to the previous episode, folks. All right, what's what's up, man? What's what are we going to? What's crackalacking? We'd untouched on this multinationally before. You talked about it in China. A couple years back, lying flat. We talk about how people were kind of working two jobs, but one was just like a mouse wiggle, just so they can get paid. Yeah, I'm bringing you something from Axios here that is claiming the American dream has lost its hustle. A couple points I'm gonna drop on you here, and I think it's it's discussion fodder. So I want us to see see what your thoughts are. One, it says. The key to job satisfaction turns out, at least for a substantial minority of workers, to be the ability to be happy in a job where you're not excelling or even trying to doing so, trying to do so. I don't know about that one. <laughs> Say more. I want to talk about it. I think it's discussion fun. Uh, just let me digest that one. The key to happiness in a job is, not is to be happy, happy in a job where you're not excelling or even trying to do so. So what this is going in the face of is if you say traditionally let's go back and look historically would be show up at your job put in the work and you get joy out of doing hard work let's just take that some version of that historically this okay. is saying yeah. that now there's at least some portion of workers where job satisfaction is about not excelling not even trying to excel you it's about it? what like uh watching tiktok on your phone getting paid i mean what what's so, the implication here Ooh, look at you using the sat words <laughs> i'm gonna drop a second one and then we'll talk about implications money buys happiness work buys stress so one smart post-capitalist move can be to work enough to be happy but not so much to be stressed i don't have any pushback there i try not to do too many personal stories but i'll like one of my first professional jobs went through the great financial crisis as did everyone else so 2007 2008 workforce gets cut in half there's layoffs everywhere and as part of that i ended up pinch hitting in other doing other people's jobs that were whatever technically lower than my pay grade but yeah like that's yep. how it worked right yep. and one of those jobs was a pretty mindless important foundational but pretty mindless work where you could if you got really good at it and were competent you could almost read a book and do the task at the same time and that was <laughs> i just want to see that, that. 
that was fun man that that was like yeah. if you look back on my professional development in this odd way it was a pretty happy time because i was like so intellectually stimulated by trying to juggle it's almost like playing a video game to do all these things yeah. at once and then it wasn't super stressful it was and and also like that was when i was first really diving into the intelligent investor and a bunch of other like really challenging financial concepts so i'm on board with that i mean sometimes you need a job that kind of is low stress i think is the the most important thing here what i wouldn't want to do in this is to paint a binary picture necessarily where the where on on one side it's about just working enough just to do that job and the other side is you're stressed out and you know draining yourself but on the implication front because you asked that question on the implication front what i think about is how do you get the innovations and productive tension and the what gets churned out by people wanting to strive to grow to improve like how do you how do you end up getting that in a world and that doesn't mean that everyone needs to be that i think that's where i don't want to paint the binary picture yeah. but if you go to like an extreme right let's we talked about nvidia you when you can you picture someplace like nvidia which the whole purpose of that organization is to innovate to find new ways of working to figure out how you can whatever they're going to do ai the crap out of this world whatever yeah. and folks are just like i just want to put in just enough but if i touch stress then it's a no go you're not going to have jensen pulling large semiconductors out of his oven if that's the case well, maybe that's his happy place man maybe he doesn't like maybe that's a low stress environment for him when he's cooking the semiconductors this keeps coming up you're so fascinated with him cooking semiconductors yeah cuz he looks good in an apron and a leather jacket <laughs> ah, he looks good in all always um, so <laughs> Yeah, let's let's keep going because I hear your non-binary point. I think it's important, but let's also not pretend that everyone in the world's goal is to be intellectually stimulated and challenged at work. There's a lot of people that for for them and and the way it was modeled to them, work is punch the clock, do a decent job, get your money and go have fun elsewhere. It, there's no right answer here. I agree what what ends up mattering in my mind so there, there are a couple things one i just mentioned if you take this in aggregate do we still get the innovation and the growth and when i say growth i don't i don't necessarily mean like gdp figures going up necessarily i just mean improvement right in general upon like personal professional development whatever it might be there's what that side the other thing as an individual is i hope that people understand the benefits that come to them and then like what's been necessary for others to to succeed even i'm taking this so let me i'll even be more more blunt here when i think about this for we talk about eliminating the wealth gap a lot income inequality and when i look at this from the perspective of minority groups and i'll just say like when i look at younger black folk to be even more specific sometimes it feels like there isn't an understanding of what the balance is between pushing back on like the system and so, and doing the thing that you need to do in order to get out of the situation. And there is a balance, I think. It shouldn't be like, because on, on one side of the equation, you can be like, uh, 
I am, I'm just going to go along with whatever the system says so I can be successful. That's like one side. And another side is I'm just going to rail against the man. I think there's a balance of figuring out how do I, how do I get to the point where I can get myself, assuming that someone wants to drive, maybe not to be wealthy, but at least drive to be like stable. And if, if you're trying to drive, I just feel like some people just don't fully grasp the, the fact that there isn't entitlement. Like you have to, there has to be some stress that exists. Some don't be stressed yeah. out. This is where well, my, am I making sense? You, you do make sense again. So let's, depending on your goal, let's assume that you're an aspiring young chap who wants to go conquer the world, right? Yes. Not everyone's in that camp, but let's assume that regardless of who you are, there's a really important thing I think that needs to happen that not everyone is blessed enough to see which is a peek behind the curtain of the organization that you run at what the executives actually value, actually care, realizing that in 99% of the organizations, everything is negotiable, including salary, job title, everything else. But so I don't think as many people as I'd like get that peek behind the curtain and truly understand like how the organization runs and what is valued. Because once you know that, it's pretty easy to get your hustle on, like <laughs> to use the terms of the article, right? It's pretty easy yeah. to grow and aspire and, you know, go excel. Yeah. But I think a lot of people are flying blind and saying, this is what my boss says. The, your boss is sometimes a terrible role model of how to play the game to move forward yeah. in that individual company. Yeah, agreed. And I, I do not believe that there's a generation of people that are lazy. Right, which I think sometimes is what can be the, the article's not saying that, but yeah. sometimes that can be what's portrayed. I do not believe that at all. I do believe that something that might be different about current generations is that you have access to more information and you also have a more comfortable life than others in your same situation historically. Meaning, if you are in let's call it the 50th percentile of the US today economically you are much better off in the 50th percentile of the U.S. economically 50 years ago. Yeah, I mean, what's the saying here, Diggles? It's like uh, when times get too easy, when people get too blessed, they get complacent. And yeah, therefore, exactly. that leads to challenging times. And then out of those challenging times come stronger individuals and, and it cycles through. And like, there's no doubt if we just go back 100 years, the life of a 17-year-old in America is significantly easier and more blessed than it was previously. Yeah. I just hope we're not getting complacent to your language. Yeah. That's it. I think yeah, we probably are. I mean, how could we not be? I just hope we're not. I hope we're not. It's easy to see these days. It's easy to get the anecdotes. There's Again, there is so much information on the other side, too. There's just information out there. You can interpret it however you want. And so what is happening on the ground is... It's always tough to fully know, but we can see the anecdotes. We can see whatever data interpreted however we want. I just hope that ultimately it's not about complacency. It might be about pushing in different areas. Like maybe the spikes are going to be different and the innovation is going to look different than it has before, which would be awesome. I just hope we're, we're pushing at all. Even if the pushing is not in your 40 hour a week job, Maybe the pushing is somewhere different. And so that we just have growth in different areas. I just want to make sure we're not stagnant and complacent as a society. That's, I'm going to leave it. I'm going to leave it down. 
I'll tell you this article mentions the Reddit thread anti-work. I'm gonna check that out. See what see what the hot topics are. <laughs> what people are talking about when they're anti-work. Uh, do it. Um, I'm gonna pull something out of my fishbowl that we didn't even talk about the uh, the pre-show meeting. But guys, as you know, sometimes on this show we like to pretend you're at a pub and you have some investors, couple drinks in, debating topics. So there's no takeaways from this. I'm not asking you to take action. This is something that's been going on in my brain for like two weeks, and I need to talk to Douglas about it. So from memory, Apple, the stock, makes up like 46% of Berkshire Hathaway's portfolio. And Apple's sales have started to slow. Now, granted, they'll release a new iPhone in September in all likelihood, and, and who knows what happens down the road. Their services business is growing off the charts, and so there's some positives there. But I'm talking it, Apple's like three times what any other equity holding in Berkshire's Hathaway's portfolio is right now because of the incredible growth it's had and because of the... that. I mean, people are claiming now that Apple might be Buffett's best investment of his lifetime, which I don't believe, but like that tells you how good the returns have been for him. From an absolute dollar perspective, I'm sure it is. Oh, for, yeah, but... That, yeah. From an absolute dollar perspective, it just means what happened at your end of life when your dollars compound. Exactly. But anyway, let me give you some stats, Douglas. I'm just out of the camp that like Buffett kind of has to pull back. He has to sell some of this because it seems it's not like Nvidia crazy high, but it it certainly seems on the high side of fair. And Buffett doesn't have to do anything. He has more money than he could ever spend, and his company is. Uh, still sitting on 150 billion dollars in cash like he doesn't have to do anything but i think just the investor side of him has to start to be thinking about hey is this a little over its skis and i'm interested to see how he wants to have that or how he wants to handle that so does set that up well before i give you some stats yeah you set it up well if you're buffett right now you're i mean what are you doing how are you thinking about your apple position Right now, I'm waking up in the morning with peanut brittle on my chin. <laughs> he sleeps with peanut butter like on his chest so he can have some when he first wakes up. Exactly. Yeah, what, I, what I'd be curious to look at, before you even go to the stats, what I'd be curious to look at is uh, Berkshire Hathaway's portfolio over time and what the top like three holdings concentration-wise have been. Mm-hmm. And then secondarily, what the relative value valuation of each of those holdings are I'm, I'm curious where how much apple is a full anomaly in berkshire's history i would bet that it kind of is but i i, I don't know yeah so um from my just memory of his portfolio and watching it evolve over the past 20 years um it feels like this is one of his highest concentration bets but i'll pull some stats on that maybe for next time here's the thing i wanted to give you comparing um, some Apple valuation metrics, uh, their current position versus their five-year position. These are straight from Morningstar. So price to sales currently at 3.7. The five-year um, average is six. Price to earnings is at 30. Five-year average is 25. Price to cash flow, 25. Five-year average is 20. Again, it's not like crazy. It's not NVIDIA. It's just on the high side of fair or the high side of historical average. Um, enterprise value currently like, 2.8 trillion five-year average is like 1.9 i mean so it just feels like it's no longer a deal like i'm not buying apple today even yeah. if someone was giving me a 
20% discount, I'd be like, there's better deals in the market. I still think it's a great company. I still expect them to continue to print cash, but it's kind of all those factors, Douglas, where it's like, you're at 46% of your portfolio. It's probably, um, there's probably some profits to take. What's he going to do? I think the question that you're asking if you're at Berkshire is what is Apple going to be worth in 15, 20 years? And then who cares about the rest? I think that's that's the question. Because you, if you look at it in a different way, you could say Apple is the most valuable company in the world. It's at the high end of its average. And I'll, I'll say this might not be true, but I'm going to go, I'm going to put this out there. Inevitably, there's going to be a pullback. Okay, so it's at a $2.8 trillion enterprise value. Let's say that pulls back and you're at $1.9 trillion. In 15 to 20 years, are you going to be at 3.8? Then who cares? Yeah, I think that, um, that that's the question. I, I'm, I don't know the answer right to that. But I think that's if you're at Berkshire, that's what you're asking is, does this have the capability to increase by another 50%, let's call it, over the next 15, 20 years? And it's 46% of my massive portfolio. What does that do for cash flows? I think that's the I question just, you got to ask. Yeah, I just did a mass viral and it was at you, but it wasn't directed at you. It was directed at Buffett. Um, <laughs> I mean, I'm not what, a Berkshire, what, I'm not a Berkshire historian, like, like half the world is right. I kind of yeah. follow it, but I don't care that much. Right. Um, so I'm pulling up some stats and we can actually look at these things. So one Buffett, a guy that often says like, think about investing as if you get 15 total trades in your lifetime, or I forget the number, maybe it's 20, right? Yeah. Yep. He, he's still a guy that buys or sells stuff every quarter that like his, uh, so I pulled up his 13 F so we can watch how many trades he actually makes, even though he tells everyone else that you, you only get 15 trades in your entire lifetime. He, so it's not as if you're totally right. Oh, what's it going to be worth in 15 years? And maybe him and Munger, maybe they've had that exact conversation, but it's kind of like, your actions don't show that, dude. You, it's not like you're you're buying and selling Chevron like crazy. You're, I mean, he he hasn't held Apple for thirty years. He's held it for like what four or a five? decade? No, I think uh, it's like, uh, really? Yeah, maybe. I want to say they bought it in like fourteen. So maybe not quite a decade. Okay, like yeah, eight, still eight nine years. Yeah, yeah. I just don't. Yeah, I, I mean, it's it is. This is a it's an anomaly of an organization. But I think that's, I'm just saying that's the question you got to ask. And also, if you're specifically Warren Buffett or Charlie Munger, if you're talking about more than five years, not my problem. <laughs> All right. So this is from the 13F from Q1 2023, just to give you an idea of the activity here. Yeah. Uh, new purchases, three stocks, additional purchases, seven stocks, sold out of four stocks and reduced holdings in nine stocks. He's going on 20 some trades in Q1. Like, it's not like he's afraid to sell. I mean, he, uh. so that's my eye roll. Maybe I'll post this and we can talk does about it. Does Buffett log time. into his Schwab account to do this stuff? I know he does, obviously. He doesn't, but no, I just... like he writes it down on a piece of paper. Remember, he, I think he's still doing this where his secretary prints out the emails and then he handwrites it back and then she like scans it and sends it back to Gates or whatever. Like, I, he's not. All I'm telling you, all I'm telling you is if you're trading billions of dollars at a time, you better have some legible handwriting. <laughs> all right. Um, can I fishbowl reach? 
Or you got Please. more to say? Yeah. I'm going to fishbowl reach. I got to rant a little bit, playa. I got to rant a little bit. And I don't want to. I do not want to do this. But Nick, Nick Majuli, who we, over the last two years, if you go back and listen to some of our episodes, we talk about good writer, enjoys thought process, respect how he respects money and how he's learning in the game because he's relatively new. Yeah. relatively he's been writing for a few years but relatively new to the game and respects it i don't know what's gotten into him but we talked about uh, one of his pieces a, a few weeks back and now i got another one that i'm just like nick what the dilly be at bro <laughs> so th- yeah that's what i would say if he was here right now that's what i would say so nick writes his blog of dollars and data and he has this recent post called paychecks not portfolios why income is the key to financial success Basic premise of this thing, straightforward and simple and sure would be how I would respond to it. And that basic premise is if you don't have enough income to be able to save, then you cannot build wealth over time. That is the basic premise. And I get that premise. Yeah. And that everyone's going to agree with that. Your savings rate has to be positive in order to build wealth, right? Yeah. But the way that he goes about this is as if he's like his life is threatened. And he's trying to, I mean, he's this is like a come at me and say something to my face if you don't believe this. Kind of the way he writes this, the tone is like super aggressive. But I'll I'll say a couple couple of points that he brings out, which again I think are spirit-wise fine. As time has passed, I've become increasingly convinced that the best predictor of whether someone is likely to build wealth is their income. It's not their asset allocation, their investment knowledge, or their financial goals that matter. Tell me someone's income, and that will tell me more about their ability to build wealth than just about anything else. The only word, in my opinion, he makes me drop vowels in my speaking here. The only word, in my opinion, that saves this paragraph is that in that last sentence, he says, ability. When he's talking about building wealth and not likelihood or or aptitude or you know some something else there. But I would never write this down. This feels like it's a I don't know, there's no safety, I think, in fully believing this paragraph. I see no value in fully believing this paragraph. I see value in the idea of saying, generally, if there's more income, there's more I can save. Cool. So Having more income allows me to increase my savings rate. It allows me to to put more money away, et cetera. But just the flat belief that like it's all about the income, that asset allocation, investment knowledge, and financial goals don't matter. Yeah, not so great. So I'm going to take a few deep breaths over there, Deagles. I want you to yell again soon. But um, this, <laughs> let's move on to the second part of the paragraph where he goes to a Mo- Morgan Housel book called The Psychology of Money. Great book. We recommend it on the book. show. Highlighted case of a janitor called, named Ronald Reed who amassed more than an $8 million fortune when he died at 82. So uh, the Morgan uses this example as a guy that was just super frugal, high savings rate, not huge income, and ended up with a nice chunk of money, right? Well, Nick went back. I would never in all my years think to do this. Nick went back and tried to backtest this and was like, 
I don't know, man. Looks a little fishy. Is he accusing this janitor of like <laughs> insider trading or something? I mean, like, why can't we just, first of all, Morgan's good enough that I'd assume he's validated that there was no fraud happening or whatever. But like, you have proof with this guy's fidelity statement that he is worth 8 million bucks. You know, he was jitter for 67 years or whatever. I don't even get the premise of being like, oh, Ronald Reed. Yeah. Nope. Nope. Could have made yeah. that money. Look at him. He needed a higher income to be to make that much money. What's what's going on there? Why even attack the story? Am I? I don't know. No, the the potential saving grace, if I'm giving Nick the benefit of the doubt in this, the potential saving grace is that what Nick is trying to do is not talk to individuals with this piece, but trying to talk to systems and saying, if we don't pay people more, we will not allow people to build wealth. I, that's like the potential saving grace in this whole thing. Because I do like that later on in the piece, Nick talks about how people will sometimes or maybe oftentimes bash people that have less money and say it's because you spend too much when it's not about them spending too much necessarily. They may not have enough money to not spend less. Like he does say that. And that makes me believe that something that Nick might be trying to do is say, as a society, we should pay people more because paying people more than allows them to save. That is potentially the only saving grace. But it doesn't fully read that like it doesn't fully read that way. And and also I just think if if this is talking to individuals, it is not a the mindset is not a helpful mindset for an individual to have. Because this mindset to me, a mindset that can come from this is saying either A, which is this is something we I think we would collectively bash up against, is if you don't make enough money, don't worry about your asset allocation or your investment knowledge, uh, because that doesn't matter. What matters is making more money. I don't, that is not a mindset that I'd want to put in people's heads. Uh, I do think that a potential mindset that, that could be good coming from this is as you earn more income, you will be able to save more. And so make sure that you do or something like that. But Nick, something happened. If you need help, skippydougals at gmail.com nick no and well yeah let's leave it there i was not a fan of this i think there's probably good intent but maybe the tone came across wrong or something again if the high level takeaway is what i would call common sense which is if the bare minimum cost of living is 30k a year and you make 29k a year you're not going to be on the wealthy train like yep we we all know that there is a certain threshold of income required to have a positive savings rate. And if you have a positive savings rate, regardless of how big or how small that is, you can make smart financial decisions with the savings that you accrue. And there's no judgment if those savings are small or large. On the Skippy and Diggles show, we're going to applaud that, right? And then yep, yep. there's ways whether you grow your nest eggs through that positive savings rate or you continue to go uh, crush it at your job and make more and more money, there's ways to make smart decisions from there. But yeah, this high level takeaway that feels a little blind of like, oh, dude, you got to go make a million bucks a year to be worth your salt in anything doesn't, I'm not really on board with that. 
And lastly, before I turn it over to you for your next fishbowl item, the reason at the beginning of this, I stated that it seems like Nick is bringing a threatening tone or something that feels unnecessarily soapboxy. I'm just going to read you the last paragraph. Please do. Lastly, before you argue that expense tracking or goal setting or manifesting your future wealth are more important than income, remember to bring data. I'll have mine. Who are you talking? Like, <laughs> who is this geared toward? It's like, it sounds like he's backed into a corner and needs to either win this argument or it's life or death. I just don't, there's, there's something behind this. And I don't know what it is. And Nick, if you're listening to this, we would love to know, respect your work historically. Sounds like you're in trouble. Again, skippydoogles at gmail.com. Reach out, Nick. Okay. Well, I, no, I don't, I don't get like who's out there. Oh, whatever struggle to make ends meet being like oh i need to talk to this financial blogger about how this is the perfect path forward and uh, i chose to do um whatever instead of work at the hedge fund like it, yeah it's exactly not really yeah who's yeah. here to pick this fight it's I, I i don't think anyone's like oh i wish or i'm purposely struggling to get a positive yep. savings rate like this doesn't exist all right, like let's continue talking about hogwash. So, remember when I brought brought up the uh, GPT portfolio? Oh yes. What one study came out uh, from I think is University of Florida that said, hey, they used uh, AI to pick stocks and it actually outperformed. And it was like not a very long study, if I remember right, it was twelve weeks or something. And my argument at the time was it's a coin flip. Anyway. Some enterprising folks uh, decided to do this with real live money. They made it so your retail investors, and I'm sure they're the same ones that love AMC and GameStop, uh, <laughs> could throw real money in alongside. And Dougal's, I would think, actually, I should pull this up. I would think we're about six weeks in to this uh, test as well. Drum roll, please. Do you think they're Outperforming or underperforming no, spy? Underperforming. Uh, currently, uh, spy has returned almost eight percent, and the GPT portfolio has returned two percent. Again, when this happened, I told you there was a what a slim chance, a five percent chance that they could get lucky with the roll of the dice. But no, they're they're like picking stocks every week or having their model pick stocks every week. Of course, they're underperforming. It's basically day trading. And so here's the thing that fired me up about their latest tweet. It says, improvements next week include bringing more AI experts to the algo, algo, stop losses, and more. So they're out there still thinking like, oh, it's the algorithm. They're like, if we, if we, our stop loss methodology gets better, we're going to outperform. No, you guys are not going to outperform because you trade too much. This is tales of yes. all this time. This is like basically never happened if they did this for a hundred years i could guarantee they would underperform the index why have you seen forgetting sarah marshall yeah so there's a scene in forgetting sarah marshall where a surf instructor that is played by paul rudd mm -hmm. is teaching well well <laughs> supposed to be <laughs> uh, uh, teaching the, the main protagonist in this great film how to stand up on a surfboard. And the central theme of it is do less. He goes, do less. Oh, nope, you're doing too much. 
do less. And eventually he just lays on the surfboard and he goes, well, we got to do more than that. But I do think that that's good advice for this GPT situation. Do less. Maybe don't, don't do anything. Actually, you shouldn't have started the whole thing, but do yeah. less. There is $33 million from 41,000 investors in this garbage. Buying and selling different stuff every week so they can have alpha, which is outperformance, of negative 6%. Why, guys? Just this is stupid. It was stupid at the start. And But what's hilarious about it is this happens a ton in the investing world. You do a back test that looks like it's going to work. And this isn't even really a back test because this is randomly throwing stock picks at a at AI. And it works one time. And then when you actually try and implement it with real money, it underperforms. It's how it works. Get out of that I'm, garbage. Yeah, I'm going to I'm going to use that as a, as a perfect transition over to this time machine I'm going to take you into. So whoop, 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 whoop. that's the sound of a time machine. I'm going to take you back to 2006. Conversation with a money master is the name of this PDF that I was spying. And it's an interview with Bill Miller, someone that's come up on the pod a few times. There are some solid gems. Or even maybe I'll say this. There's some solid, going back to what I said near the beginning, discussion fodder that came from this, but also some gems, I believe. And one of them that I think relates to that point around AI is this. Are you ready for this? Efficiency. We, we discussed market efficiency before on the pod. This is going back even, you know, whatever this is, 17 years here. We're talking about market efficiency. Uh, so what Bill says is in the current market, so this is a historical market, but in the current market, one of the changes is that hedge funds have made the market highly informationally efficient. And here's the important point. In the short run, the result, he says, is that the opportunity is about time arbitrage, which means that if you lengthen the time horizon that you're thinking about for an investment, the more likely it is that that investment might be able to outperform. The point here that I think is really interesting is because what he's saying, I'll say it a different way, but the same thing. What he's saying is, if everyone, everyone, let's say all retail investors at least, have the same information today, then a short-term time horizon advantage is super difficult, if not impossible to have. It's just a guessing game. But no one has the information for what's happening three years out, five years out, 10 years out. No one has the information. What you can do is you can look at what your, your favorite like valuation methodology is. You can look at past results. You can talk to management. There's lots of stuff you can do, but that's a, that's a game of uh, analytics, of experience, of whatever you can call it, whatever you might be. And so you can have, there's, there's, it's possible to have arbitrage there, but in the short run, it's just a guessing game. Spit on it. I think the most powerful thing to do is you can bet on mean reversion and say it's more likely than not. And that will happen with a longer time horizon. But almost every investor worth their salt, including guys like Seth Klarman, have said some version of this, which is 
Uh, and Jason Swag says this all the time, like the advantage of the individual non-professional investor that just crushes almost everyone else is an extended time horizon. If you can buy and hold stuff for five, 10 years or more, um, almost none of the hedge funds, uh, almost none of the professionals do that. And it's a massive advantage. Let me drop another one. I thought this was a really cool way of thinking about something. So he says, uh, passive management does not give investors the return of the index. It gives investors the return of the index minus costs. Mm -hmm. One of the arguments against active management is that it underperforms, but passive management underperforms every year forever. True. I, I, I just found that to be now it's the easy argument to say, let's take this intellectually. Cause it's the easy argument to say, okay, yeah, you're buying a Vanguard fund. Yeah. And so your, your costs are like minus 0.02%. I mean, that cost can be so small that it's effectively like saying, if you get paid in cash, if you make all your transactions in cash for the rest of your life, you might lose a penny here or there. So, yeah. right. The intellectual argument says, well, you never get true value. Uh, you should do it a different way, but it's yeah. right. Yeah, I, it's right. I appreciate I, the thought experiment. I think the point is there are like a couple points you can you can pull from this, and it's not these are not Bill Miller's points, but what Google's is saying here is the point is that if you want to outperform, you can't do it by buying a passive index. I think that's straightforward. And so if you if you want to outperform, there has to be active management. Now I think the other point that Google's going to bring in here is do you need to outperform like for the general. <laughs> investor and the my answer would be no you don't have to outperform but bill miller saying if you want to outperform it has to be with active management because otherwise passive management you're going to underperform every year forever so take that straight up i just think it's a it's a cool way of stating it all right another another one 100 of it this is i've heard this in various ways in other places too but i like it 100 of the information you have about any business reflects the past and 100 of the value of that business depends on the future but 100% of the value about the future is judgments you have to make, which is significantly less reliable than the data you have that is trustworthy from the past. So Bill Miller in this interview even goes on to argue that he's teaching that to analysts and often he's discounting the information that they have in front of them. There's validity to that. But my, the flip side of that argument for someone like me who almost always invests based on the past information is, yeah, at least I can trust that information. At least it's not some hogwash story, which the human brain is a sucker for storytelling, good and bad, that says, oh, this is where we are going. We work is at 16 cents a share or 21 cents a share, right? What was the story about we work three years ago? It was that it was going to dominate the new work the new office space well now they don't even think they have enough money to operate for another quarter or two let's, let's stick on we, say, let's, let's, let's stick on we yeah. work for a second huh? i'm gonna interrupt because yeah. you know last week we were talking about gurus and their ability to predict this week i sent you a text and that text said if you are going to look at WeWork, look at it now. And if you calculate the return of WeWork from the minute that I sent that text until the end of the week, it doubled. <laughs> I mean, this is 
This is brilliant. So how much how much money did you make on WeWork? What? How much money? Did you... Oh, sorry, the line is breaking up. I couldn't. I couldn't hear. You. I'm not putting my money in WeWork. All right, another one. Th- this is something that uh, that Taleb talks about a whole bunch too. The author of the Black Swan. Uh, part of what people insufficiently distinguish or confuse is the difference between frequency and magnitude. That is how often you're right or wrong versus how much money you make when you're right and how much money you lose when you're wrong. Uh, this this is a point, and you know, we've talked about it a bunch. It's brought up a number of times. I think it's super important, and I'll hammer home all the time, is that it's not I invested in 10 stocks and I made money on those 10 stocks. Mm-hmm. It could be I invested in 10 stocks and I, I'm making up numbers, but I lost 15% on nine of those stocks and I made 5x on the 10 stock. And depending on what the weighting is between the stocks, I'm assuming equal there, like that's what's important. And it's it's it can be hard, I think, for the human brain to be able to acknowledge that and act or not on that. But it's a super important point. It's about the magnitude, not the frequency. Agreed. I'm trying to uh, let's stick on WeWork. Uh, let me pull up <laughs> market cap history here. WeWork in late 2021 based on the stock price, was valued at as much as $7 billion. Okay? Yeah. Currently, I think its valuation is currently more like $300 million, mm. Right? Mm-hmm. This is not investment advice. Uh, if anyone's smart, you will run as far away from WeWork as possible. But what's interesting about this narrative is at what point does the valuation of the company get so low that the brand value simply because we work is in the lexicon of what people talk about when they talk about co-working spaces actually exceeds the the total value of yeah. the stock does we work own its buildings do you know in most cases spaces? no in most cases no and that's why um Ooh. it's really challenging because <laughs> they their landlords are in a tough situation because it's all commercial real estate and their reservations uh, ha- were really solid until this last quarter, and now they flopped. Mm. That's a, it's a, it's a tough spot. <laughs> I, w- I was really hoping you were like, yeah, for the most part, because then there's some hope. Oh, okay. Come on. You think Adam Newman was going around being like, let's make long-term investments in our building space? No. <laughs> he was going around lighting money on fire. Yeah, he was trying to improve the world's consciousness. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Obviously, this one, I think somewhat straightforward, but I thought it was a cool point around dividends or share repurchases. If the company's shares traded a big discount to what they're worth, management should repurchase shares. If the shares trade at or above what they're worth, management should be paying out dividends. How many more Bill Miller points do you have? Because I have an article specifically on dividends. That's it. So let's transition there. So this is from uh, NDVR. It's really deep in the weeds, nerdy on basically factor investing, but specifically talks about dividends. So it's called Income Illusions, the Challenge of the High Yield Stock Narrative. And it breaks down the good and bad with dividends. As you stated before, I don't think everyone knows this, but you should. When a company pays out dividends, the stock, uh, the total value of the stock reduces by the amount of dividend paid. In a lot of cases, those dividends go immediately back to share repurchases. And so you don't always see this huge blip in the stock chart, 
But if you're a company and your enterprise value is a hundred bucks and you send five of that to shareholders, obviously you have five less in cash on your balance sheet and the value of your company adjusts, right? So also dividends are less tax efficient than capital gains in most cases. So there are a lot of people here that are going to argue high dividend stocks are bad because someone like Buffett, let's go back there at Berkshire Hathaway, he's going to buy back shares rather than issue dividends simply because of that point about tax efficiency, but also because he thinks he's the world's best capital allocator and he might be. And so he'd rather make the decisions about where that cash goes, rather that it goes to repurchasing, whether it goes to buying more Apple stock than just signing up and saying this, you know, 2% goes back to the investor of my stock every quarter. He's just not going to do it that way. I think in the nerd world of finance, it's now there's now a talking point that like dividends are horrible. And I want to push back on that a little bit. So the study comes out with a conclusion that says, actually says the total attributable, uh, the total return attributable to a dividend is zero. And it breaks down that effectively when you have high dividend stocks, what's happening is you have something else going on. Like that stock is actually a momentum stock or that stock is actually a value stock. And that's the reason that the di high dividend stock outperforms. But the study also says, <laughs> sorry, I'm a soapbox here, Dougals. This is like the first line of the first, uh, sorry, second line of the second paragraph. It says, we show that high dividend stocks have historically outperformed low dividend stocks delivering higher returns with lower risk. So I don't really care if you dive deep into the weeds, what is driving that return, whether it's that it's actually a value stock or it's actually a momentum stock. I think that takeaway is pretty dang powerful. High <laughs> dividend stocks outperform. The reason high dividend stocks outperform is dividend is a proxy for basically a fact that it's uh, deviated to the negative side away from its average value, and it's likely to return there. So am I too deep in the weeds? Is there too much nuance here? Like, let's not paint dividends as terrible. Are they perfectly tax efficient? No. Are they a perfect investing strategy? No. Should you make your investing strategy that you look at dividends and nothing else? No, because you're going to get burnt by looking in the rear view mirror. Some of these stocks with really high dividends have no chance of continuing that dividend in the future. The reason they have a high dividend is because they used to have a great business and it fell off a cliff and they haven't killed the dividend yet. But broadly, high dividends are not horrible. They actually outperform based on historical backtesting. Yeah, I think maybe along the lines of your point, but if not, that'd be even better. Academically interesting, this stuff. But you can kind of do this with a lot of things. Like if if they're saying it's not about the dividend, it's about the underlying factors. It'd be like me saying it's really not about cash flow. Like you're saying it's cash flow. It's not about cash flow. Cash flow just represents that you can run your business efficiently and effectively. So just look to see what businesses are running efficiently and effectively and go for it. Go. The perfect example on that on that exact one is it's not about cash flow. It's about profit margins. Well, how do you get cash flow? You have to have high profits. Like yeah. so. Yeah. But then if you reduce that far enough, then you get to the place where we were, I don't know, two years ago. You go, well, actually, it's not about profit margins. It's about EBITDA. bitta. It's not about EBITDA. No, you, you go, it's not about that. It's about go, revenue. It's about revenue. It's actually yeah, not even about revenue. It's about volume. Revenue. 
It's not, it's not about revenue. It's about volume. It's actually not even about volume. It's about pitch decks. Like you can keep reducing this to, <laughs> to wherever you want to. But I, I think, again, academically, it's interesting, but to, I, maybe to the point that you're raising, you know, yeah, that underlying factor is great. If this is, if this is a solid proxy for that to start my research, then fantastic. And if someone's been able to pay out dividends at an increasing rate over 50 years, that's an indicator of something. Like that may not mean that the stock price is going to grow a lot in the future, but it's an indicator of something. And maybe that something's pretty good. Google's those increasing dividends over 30 to 50 years actually has a name. It's called dividend aristocrat stocks. And they outperform like mad. It's a quality investing strategy simply because it says not only is this dividend predictable, it's never been cut, it's never been discontinued, it also continues to grow, which tells you so much about the underlying business that it's profitable, that it's predictable, that it's consistent. That in that case, if you're buying a basket of dividend or risk cut stocks, it's not the best investing uh, methodology in the world, but it's certainly better than thousands of others. Like it's pretty solid. So I just needed to push back on this. Um, yeah, if you're a real investing nerd, I think you can see both sides of this. And I'm not saying the takeaways are wrong, but it seemed like someone, I don't know, had a little too much time on their hands and wanted to say that the yellow truckle symbol is not actually orange, that it's actually <laughs> How is that yellow coming up system. every week? How is that coming up every Just week? obsessed with it. Just obsessed oh, with it. What else is in your That's all I got, man. Yeah, I think that's all I got too. All right, Doogles mentioned it several times. Hit us, uh, skippydoogles at gmail.com. Premium subscriptions available, skippydoogles.supercast.com. That helps support the show. And uh, we'll talk to you all next week. Danke. Okay.